This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast, episode 32. And in today's episode, in our new segment, we're going to chat about this potential jetpack person flying at 6,000 feet above LA, which is seemingly unconfirmed and also terrifying. Uh, and also, we're going to talk a little bit about Boeing uh, potentially selling one of their HQs and considering some mobile options. So as you know, as everyone is uh, rethinking, you know, what office life looks like in our engineering segment, we are going to talk a lot about birds. There's an interesting study on bird flight, uh, with the barn owl, also the air, uh, the Airbus albatross, which has actually like, uh, segmented wings, if that's the right term for it, but they sort of flap. So really interesting demonstrator technology there. And then lastly, in our electric tech segment, we're going to chat about drones being used at the airport, which is a pretty cool idea. And then the Ampere, so their EEL uh, aircraft has made some pretty impressive uh, long-haul flights. Well, maybe not long-haul, but some pretty impressive distance flights recently uh, as in what they call the most maybe commercially relevant uh, electric aircraft at the moment. So, Alan, let's start with what is the deal with this uh, jetpack? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Isn't it crazy that we've had now two sightings from airplanes from multiple aircraft coming into LAX where they see a, what looks to or appears to be a guy on a in a jetpack? Because the, the 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 feedback to the control towers and the ground crews are, it looks like a guy in a jetpack. So the, <laughs> you know, the pilot's eyes, you know, the thing about pilots is they usually have pretty good eyes. That's one of the criteria to fly an airplane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I would say that they're probably telling you the truth that they actually seen this guy in a jetpack. Now, the it, it, in this uh, mobile phone dominated world where we're taking video of all kinds of things, it's weird that nobody has posted any video or I haven't seen any video on TikTok, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, Snapchat. You know, it, there's just no video of this thing occurring, and it seems like if it's if it's some sort of prank, that there would be a ton of video online about it that. Uh, would get you know, picked up somewhere, but we don't have that either. So there's a lot of curiosity about it because if it ever got to a situation where it ran into an airplane, that, that result would not be good. And if it is a real person, and there's been conjecture that it's a dummy <laughs> attached to a jetpack or some sort of, uh, I've even heard some discussion about being a helium-filled thing that just floats around. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, who knows, but I just don't want to be playing around airports. That's one of the sort of basic fundamental rules around airports is don't put things in the air where an airplane can run into them. <laughs> because you're risking a lot of people's lives for some nonsense that you want to go pull off. Uh, but yeah, do you think it's a real jetpack, Dan? Do, well, in a- reading this article from NBC News, uh, so David May- Mayman is the CEO of Jetpack Aviation in LA. And he said, it's kind of funny, that they have five jetpacks. They're all under lock and key. Only 
he and his <laughs> chief engineer have those keys. So they're like, no one's taking these out, you know, under our nose. <laughs> and, uh, and he also said, I mean, he had a lot of really good reasons that this is probably not a one of his packs for sure, but uh, B, you know, some, so he said basically their model holds 12 gallons of fuel, which is about 10 minutes worth of flight time. And it would take mm. about seven minutes to climb to 6,000 feet, which is where the recent sighting was. Right. So he said to get up there and come back down, he said, it's pretty unlikely, like you probably just wouldn't make it fuel wise. And then when it does come down, it uses like a, a large parachute essentially. So he said, these things are so loud. They're super interesting. Obviously they come down with a parachute. He's like, why wouldn't, you know, if this was actually happening, someone would have taken a cell phone video. See this, see go. this going on. Like there would be evidence that someone's doing this, but nothing's surfaced so far. So he thinks it's just a drone. Like some kid just like made some crazy drone and I don't know, maybe attach the dummy to it. You don't, who knows, but <laughs> well, it, does seem, it? it does seem pretty implausible the way he describes it. Well, okay. So let's get back to the, to the real interesting part of this, which is the David Blaine balloon stunt. Did you see that David Blaine magician I watched guy. some of the, I think he's an interesting dude. I watched some of it, but it was like a three hour long, like YouTube video. Uh, yes, it so was. I watched, I watched a little bit of it. Yeah. Well, in our but, I think I skip, but I think I skimmed enough where I didn't like get the point. <laughs> so I, the, <laughs> the little that I watched, I like screwed it up for myself. I should have skimmed more effectively. Well, but. do you think that this may be a follow on, a copycat to what Blaine was doing? Because he basically took a whole bunch of, of helium balloons and tied it onto a lawn chair. <laughs> Isn't that what happened? Or he was holding mm -hmm. on to them. He was physically holding on to them for a long time. Well, um, he was holding on to it, but it clearly like that wasn't what was keeping him attached to it, right? And he was just right. holding holding on there for uh, stability. To your life? <laughs> yeah, because I was looking at that. I'm like, there's no way you're only suspended by your forearms right now. That just no. wouldn't be realistic. But no, no, no. But yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, you never know. Something could surface. This is actually like Batman or Iron Man or something, you know, <laughs> David Blaine, who's probably the closest to being probably Batman in our Well, I, I think I one mean, of the things, yeah, that's true. But is one of the Blaine uh, problems or what they were trying to prove, I guess, is that he went up for like 23,000 feet, 24,000 feet, something like that. And the air mm -hmm. gets really thin. It gets really difficult to breathe. At 6,000 feet, it's not really all that difficult to breathe. So Blaine was going to another level. But I just wonder if this is a copycat of what he was doing. It's starting to, starting to feel like that. Mm-hmm. So Boeing is considering selling their commercial headquarters. Um, Alan, you have you been to their uh, Seattle headquarters? Yes, I have a couple of different times. Uh, it's a really interesting building. It's a very modern building, and it's one of the as you th drive through the Boeing complex, it's one of the buildings that stands out to you. So it it. Um, housed the Boeing hierarchy for a long time until they all moved to Chicago to make their new headquarters. And uh, I still don't really understand the whole Chicago move. I guess it was just to say, hey, we're a, 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 an international company and we're not just a Seattle company. Okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. But it, it, at some point uh, when that headquarters did really move, there was a a big concern about whether Seattle was going to continue to be the the landmark location for Boeing in terms of aircraft production. And now with the South Carolina 787 manufacturing just going to occur 
down in South Carolina and they're going to stop all production up in the Seattle area and they want to sell off the old headquarters building. It's starting to feel a little ominous. And uh, I'm sure uh, with the 737 pressure, with the COVID-19 and not a lot of people flying, and now uh, the re sort of realignment of Boeing and the stock prices hasn't been doing all that great. There's got to be a, a ton of concern from the employees and the surrounding community is how long is Boeing planning on staying and, and what are we doing uh, as a and from a state government, local government thing. I know that they've, they've given Boeing a, a number of uh, tax incentives to hang around the area, but I'm not sure that's working anymore. Uh, it's just not, not what you want to see because uh, it, this goes back to our discussion uh, a couple of episodes ago about the EVTOL market and how the EVTOL market is occurring in Silicon Valley and Europe and Vermont, <laughs> but it's not happening in normally located aerospace centers like Seattle or Wichita or even Oklahoma City or some parts of North Carolina or or even some some of the Florida things. Like there's some sort of weird weird alignment going on in the aerospace industry, and, and Boeing is is too large of a company to make drastic changes quickly, but. We're seeing relatively massive reorganizational changes in geography where aerospace occurs. Obviously, during World War II, there was a lot of manufacturing. And after World War II, there was a lot of manufacturing in California for um, aircraft production pre-war, post-war. Uh, but boy, oh boy, you, you just start to wonder how long Boeing's going to be really tied to Seattle area because it would be a real shame. There's, there's just so much talent and skill in that area that has developed over such a long period of time that pulling out of there on any scale, it, it's got to be painful. Um, yeah. And when you wonder if this is the time to really sell, because I still think that, and this is just my mm -hmm. personal opinion, that people are going to really long to get back around other people and the quality of work that you do, depending on obviously what your job is. But there's still just yeah. a, a big need for collaboration and just being able to be at the desk next to someone and say, you know, let me scribble on this piece of paper. Like, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of this concept? I mean, it's just not well done over Zoom, right? And I think given the yes. opportunity in six months or a year, if people say, hey, can we come back in like little pods or can we just have a, you know, our unit of Boeing, or our unit of, you know, company X, can mm -hmm. we have a space in a WeWork over here, or a co-working space over there? Or can we have, can it be kind of back to work, but maybe not in a massive corporate um, campus? You know, you never know. I'm not sure, but I, I think it's, and of course, I'm certainly not a CEO of a massive company. Like they have a lot to think about, obviously, but yes. you just wonder if this is a the right time to be selling off and because they might want their campus back in, in two years. That's kind of right. what I feel like. Everyone well, should yeah. just come back. They're kind of landlocked. You know, it's, not, it's not Kansas where you've got thousands and thousands of acres. You can just plant yourself somewhere else. Seattle mm -hmm. is not that way. There's limited places where you want to build an airplane factory. So uh, you really don't want to give up something on prime real estate, which you own. You just want to just, you know, if you just want to close the doors and call it a day or or lease it, lease it with a, you know, contingency, we can kick you out in 60 days. Maybe that, 
<laughs> that makes a little more sense, but I'm not sure selling it makes any real sense right now. All right, so moving on to our engineering segment, Alan, let's talk about the barn owl. So interesting article from General, uh, General Aviation News mm-hmm. that, you know, they're studying the way, like everyone loves owls. They're super cool looking. They're vicious. They're, they also look calm because they fly just so gracefully. But obviously, like we've talked about uh, trailing edge serrations on our other podcasts about wind energy, how that technology is coming to wind turbine blades how the chevrons, which is essentially the same thing, are on jet mm-hmm. engines to reduce noise. So lots of lessons mm-hmm. learned from, um, you know, different creatures like the barn owl. Right. Uh, but so in this study or this this article, they had an owl named Lily in the lab at the Royal Veterinary College. And uh, they're just tracking motion, kind of a challenging her with different gusts of wind to see how she, re- she reacts and when she starts to become aerodynamically unsettled or unstable so mm-hmm. what are the what are what are aircraft engineers learning from stuff like this well i i think they've already incorporated some of that technology of of being able to adjust to to varying wind conditions turbulence uh i think the 787 has done that and maybe an airbus airplane has done that because if you think of a stand. Oh, let's just give the comparison here because I'll, I'll show the example as we get to owls. So an, an old 737 wing or even a Learjet wing, pretty stiff wing, right? It's a pretty stiff thing, not a lot of flexing. Till you get to the 787 and it looks like bird wings. And those those wings are flexing a whole lot. In fact, the wingtip seems to be above the, edge, the top mm-hmm. of the fuselage when you look way out there. Where it's like, it starts to scream like, oh, wow, that looks like a bird. I mean, it, it's got that sort of flappy thing going on out there. As you as you make the wings long and efficient, you start to look more resemble more and more of a bird type wing. But I do, I thought that Honeywell and I could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Honeywell had had done some some advanced technology where they're using the radar systems. Maybe it was Rockwell was using radar systems to see wind shear and things ahead of the airplane, and then to use the uh, flight control system to dampen uh, the effects and the loading on the wings and on the cabin so you're not shaking around and people are throwing up and the whole thing knocking over your coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, th- But the owl is a really interesting uh, design in terms of uh, how smoothly it flies and also because it, it's, its head relatively doesn't move. Like it, it does everything ab- about itself to keep its head very steady so it can track. I got to jump I, in and and and, calm, <laughs> and laugh at you You're saying the owl has an interesting design. Like, good job, God. It does. Way to go. Way to go. Like, you, crushed <laughs> it. you crushed it with the owl. Hey, yay, God, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Hey, it doesn't need my approval, but it is a it is a really cool design. And I, you know, I've, we've, because we live in the wilderness, we do see owls traipsing around once in a while out back. And um, if you watch them, it just, it's almost eerie to watch them move. And and it goes back to a book that I think you recommended to me or somebody recommended called Habit, which is the way your brain processes information yeah. and things that are repeating. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you uh, the owl reacts so naturally to wind gusts and wind changes, like they n- immediately know what to do. It's just instinctual almost because it's built into a, probably the root part of their brain where habit occurs when I feel this kind of wind gust, I need to I know immediately how to move and mm-hmm. I can take care of it. Whereas a computer system doesn't work that way. 
right? It doesn't have yeah. that sort of core logic of it's reacting like an animal that stinks you like that. But we're getting closer. We're getting closer. I'm not saying we're not there yet, but we're getting a lot closer than we were 10 years ago. But it's funny how we still garner so much information from nature on how it works. It's just like uh, today learning about the, the this quote-unquote plastics that are generated by sea microbes that mm-hmm. absorb carbon dioxide and make a plastic. You're like, wow, that's <laughs> holy cow, that's really cool, right? So you have a, a microbe that's generating plastic that's then breaks down in the sun. So you just, there's like no impact. And you're like, man, and all there's so much we're learning from nature uh, about how things fly, about how things develop and about, and we're just like, barely skimming the surface. And so when we do some really interesting research, it's just fascinating. And, and the way the cameras are now, we can just see things we couldn't have seen before. It just blows my mind a lot of times. It's cool. Yeah. Well, speaking of being, your, well, your mind being blown, this uh, Albatross 1 project from Airbus is really cool. So these, uh, this is a demonstrator. It's, you know, small scale, obviously. Uh, looks like it's a maybe like six feet tip to tip i don't quote me on that but yeah uh it's got you know (laughs) what would you call these in the wings it's just is it segmented or what is there a term for it but looks like it's broken into three sections and they can sort of flap right yeah the wingtips can move independently Mm -hmm. uh they're not fixed like they would be in any wing structure that i've ever flown in they the the tips are sort of elastically connected, it looked like. It wasn't like they were free to do whatever they wanted to, but they could kind of respond to the way that the, air, the airflow was coming. And the reason why Airbus was playing with this is that they realized it reduced drag and reduced wing loading, uh, which thereby extends the lifetime of the wings and makes the airplanes more efficient. And like I've said on many occasions on this podcast, uh, they did a model of it. And they were flying it to prove out the technology on the smallest scale they could. It, it was the video. Did you watch the video of that where they had a like a, yeah, it's a, really a, interesting. a airplane mm-hmm. sliced in half and stuck to the side of a panel van, <laughs> and they're driving down the runway, uh, watching how this wing responds in, in sort of this cheap and dirty wind wind tunnel. I mean, that's essentially what it was. Is the cheapest wind tunnel you can get, which is driving down a, a runway at speed. Uh, so they were actually getting data and proving out the concept at a low level then to see if there's some technology, knowledge base, uh, ability to extrapolate it to something that's larger. You're not going to see this on your local A320 in the next five years. That's a non-starter. But uh, you may see it on other types of airplanes like these EVTOLs. Uh, that's where I think this is going, that if you can reduce the amount of drag on a smaller aircraft, thereby increasing its range, you're going to do it. And on a small scale, it makes a lot of sense to take some of this technology. So even though the aircraft model they were using was essentially an Airbus A320 type airplane, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's where they're going with this. I think they're looking at smaller scale sort of things and aircraft designs to implement this technology to improve efficiency, which would be super cool. Yeah, well, I think the the one thing the EVTOLs definitely need more of is complexity to their designs to really, you know, push them <laughs> into certification. Maybe get the first one certified like 2050 by the time, you know, I'm an uh, old man. And yeah, but no, you're right. It's it's certainly going to have to start small scale first. But right. those poor EVTOLs keep adding complexity. They're never going to get there. We're never going to have a lot of energy. Taxis. 
Don't yeah, I just want to. I just want to go get ice cream in a flying taxi. All right, don't don't complicate my dreams here. So, <laughs> but no, that's a it's, it's a it's a super cool um, demonstrator, and watching the video is really impressive. So we'll put the the links to it in the show notes. But you know, like we talked about before, it seems like you do need big companies like Airbus and Boeing to try new stuff like this out, knowing that it's obviously not going to make them any money. Um, and might be a miserable failure, but it just continues to push, you know, aerospace engineering just a little bit further, right? Right. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's jump into our electric segment today. So first thing on the docket, we're going to talk about uh, drone testing at the FedEx hub in Memphis. So I think this makes a lot of sense. Obviously, there's challenges with drones flying around and, you know, commercial drones that can p- carry a little payload and and do a lot of those things, not just like a little hobbyist one the size of your cell phone. But, you know, these are big drones with like a, you know, potentially six foot uh, circumference, sometimes bigger. So they they could cause some damage running into things. Right. So there's obviously a lot of precautions here, but FedEx is testing them you know, transporting tools to, to the other side of the airport or transporting a part or whatever it is, you know, surveying, um, you know, weather conditions on a runway or, you know, survey, surveying birds or are there birds down at this section of the, the tarmac. So um, obviously you've spent your life in aviation. How does this uh, idea strike you? I think it's totally awesome. I, I When I saw the FedEx video, I was surprised that FedEx actually put up a video of it because they usually put up videos that have more to do with the package delivery than it does the sort of the machinations of how they uh, get their airplanes up in the air. But they were really working with the FAA to, sh- to demonstrate that they could do drones safely in and around aircraft airspace and where mm-hmm. aircraft are moving around. And I FedEx is always very forward thinking and they're also extremely safety conscious. They do they do things that airlines do not do and they're still moving just moving packages. So they have a lot of advanced capabilities and technology in the cockpits and in the aircraft because they they travel to so many different remote locations they just need that little bit of an advantage of having the pilots have the most information they possibly can and and having the 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 best operating airplanes they could possibly have also because they got to move traffic all the time so downtime is a killer for fedex now the first thing that came to me was just aircraft inspection that if you had an aircraft you know how fast would it could a drone possibly inspect an airplane? Probably 15, 20 minutes, right? As it's kind of a walk around. And these airplanes are huge, like a 777 DC-10 airplane. Those airplanes are huge. It's very hard to do a real walk around them. You could have mm-hmm. a drone really scan the surface of the aircraft and say, yeah, hey, everything's all there. All your pieces are there. Nothing's falling off. Everything's A-OK uh, for the next flight. There's no dents or dings or or missing components, that kind of thing, or, uh, or, or to detect it and get it repaired as fast as you can. I think that's where the, the drone technology lies. And obviously, they can carry packages, equipment from one part of the airport to the other. Remember that uh, Memphis is a huge it is the FedEx hub in the United States. And then they do have other places that do package um, movement, but that's the big one. And if you've left your box of wrenches down at, at airplane A, it may be a long walk or a 10 minute ride down to go get it to come back. And it's just, hey, Joe, can you throw them in the drone and send it this way? Sure, boom. And it just saves time. So on the time saving side, 
huge on the safety side, huge on just aircraft inspection. I think that's where we're going is really, really good. And, uh, you know, hats off to FedEx for, for publicizing it because it seems like they're trying to work with the FAA and be upfront and get it, get the technology developed in a partnership with the FAA instead of trying to just cold cock the FAA with it, which is never a good idea. So, uh, you know, hats off to FedEx. And if you have a chance, check out that video on YouTube. It's really slick. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it does, obviously, even with like the commercial drones, like I have a little DJI drone and they can limit height, right? They can pre-program and route. So like mine, when it runs low on battery, it will just return to home. So if it's down to 15%, like it's coming back and it just knows where to go with GPS. So I'm sure they could pre-program in all these different flight routes where one drone is just like, hey, you know, like you yep. said, hey, Joe, can you send me this? Boom, he hits a button and it's just going to take its pre-programmed safe route, not in any, you know, couldn't possibly be in a, a, a real aircraft's way, you know, right. just flies over. So you hit, yeah, hit me to send the drone to, to location F, pushes a button, <laughs> off it goes. Like that, that's clearly within the technology's limits right now. And uh, obviously, oh, yeah. take it way beyond that as it goes. So I'm sure it's just going to have to be worked out, but definitely seems like a, a viable technology. So last thing on our list today, uh, the Ampere EEL, which is a six-seat Cessna 337, and this is modified. It's twin-engine uh, prop plane with an electric motor. So this is what they're claiming is you know pretty much the most commercially relevant um, aircraft right now that's all electric. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, they th flew from, they landed at Hayward Executive Airport, uh, flying from uh, California Central Valley. So they took off from Camarillo Airport and landed at, at Hayward. So about 292 statute miles. So Alan, how significant is this, uh, this little flight? I think it's huge. I mean, we had a discussion last week about the Casio being a, a hybrid. This is exactly the same type of approach, which is a hybrid. The, the, it's, it's a Skymaster 337, so it's got propel in the front, propel in the back. And they've taken the internal combustion engine out of the front end of this thing and put in an electric motor and a propeller. And the internal combustion engine on the, on the back end is still there. But I think the, the application is really interesting in that they're, they're going to basically take this whole thing to Hawaii and test flight it just to jump between the islands. Uh, so shuttle people back and forth between the islands, which would typically be a, a larger airplane, a more commercial flight or a helicopter flight or, or a boat. Uh, this, and which you know, obviously uses um, fuels, uh, this is going to use electricity to do that. That's really fascinating because it's it's found a technology. It's found a place for the technology and a place where they can develop the technology, which is exactly how you get a technology into service. Is you got to find the right application. You got to create a product with it. So the the electric motor propeller uh, uh, design is, is is something that can be done. But can you find a market in which you can service it? You know, George Buy's done it, and Buy Aerospace is doing it on the trainer side. Ampere's doing it on the short hop flight island to island, sort of short commuter service uh, aspect. That, those those are brilliant ideas, and that's the way you prove these things out and build confidence. And the electric propulsion systems is by starting off small, getting it working, gradually building it over time. So you build confidence in it because you have people in these things. And as you build confidence, you, you learn from your mistakes and the difficulties with it. You correct those situations or you engineer through them and you get better and better and better and better and better. 
That's what should be happening. And, and hats off to these guys that are doing this. It's just amazing stuff. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.